Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 14th chapter. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. The lesson for our sermon this morning for LWML Sunday comes from Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Growing up, it's no secret that my family just didn't watch sports on television. Mom's side of the family didn't, dad's side didn't, so my brother and I grew up not knowing hardly anything about the most American expressions of our cultural life. I was in college before I really understood football because I roomed with a guy who loved football. He was from Milwaukee, and as you might imagine, he absolutely loved the Green Bay Packers. And so, I'm kind of a nominal Packer fan, I guess, if you're going to twist my arm. Me and Tom, that's it, right? Maybe a few others. But whenever I do watch football, I remember those early conversations when 18, 19, 20-year-old me was asking my friend JJ, now a pastor in Minnesota, what was going on, what that meant, how come the ball went over to the other team, and him very patiently explaining it to me. And I got into it gradually, because you know that the more you understand something, the more interesting it becomes. When you don't understand it, you have no interest. How many of you have ever picked up a book in Mandarin Chinese and been in, just enthralled by it? Probably none of you, unless like Bob secretly speaks Chinese and hasn't told us all these years. Right? We don't understand it, so it's not interesting to us. 
But as I got to understand football, it did become more interesting. And I also got into the games that were the close ones. Uh, JJ always said, you just want to crush the other team and destroy them. But I was more interested in the games when it was really close down to the last minute, watching him on the edge of his seat, caring about this like it was the most important thing in the world, and me with a degree of detachment, just sort of being amused by the whole process, but also wanting them to win because he'd be grumpy if they didn't win, the Packers. Well, I always wondered, whenever I'd watch these games, and certainly games in person since, uh, what would happen in the locker room? What would the coach say in the locker room when they went into it at halftime and his team was losing 24 to 3? John, what does the coach say in those situations? How does he rally the troops? What is he going to say to these people where maybe it's not hopeless, but it's certainly not a positive outlook? Does the coach draw attention to the score deficit? Say, I can't believe you guys. This is terrible. You're doing horrible out there. Does he go around the room and point out obvious errors that certain players have made? You should have made that catch. You should have gotten that block, and so on and so forth. Or does he go on the opposite side in these situations and paint a rosy picture, just kind of blowing smoke, saying, We got this, guys. It's not a problem. We're going to come back and score three touchdowns in a row. It's going to be a different ball game altogether. We've all seen teams come back, if we've watched a game, come back from that sort of a deficit and even worse. But whenever they do, I'm always very curious, what did he say? What did he say to change their mentality, to get them to turn around and become an absolutely pathetic losing team to the victors of that game? Well, regardless of what those coaches in those games have said, today we get a glimpse of a different coach, so to speak. It's Paul the Apostle and what he writes to the church in Rome. Now, the situation he's writing for and the people he's writing to, it's a lot worse than being down at the half in a football game. It's worse than having a timeout with 90 seconds to go and a two-touchdown touchdown deficit from the other team. You see, Paul's audience are players in the biggest game that is really actually no game of all, in spite of the board game, the game of life. The players are Christians. And the church in Rome, then, and to everybody who has heard and read his words since, they are Christians. And the opponents that they are playing against is not another team. But rather, it is sin. It is death and the devil, as the catechism so aptly puts it. The sin which burdens consciences and preaches to us internally against a gracious and loving God. Death, the dark shroud which looms ahead of us all, and the devil who does prowl around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour and the scoreboard in this game is obvious. And worse than being behind, it is a seemingly unwinnable situation. Now in the face of this, in the face of these Christians and this bad way that they are in, what does Paul do to these people who are hard-pressed, guilt-ridden, burdened in their very being? What does he say? Does he offer up a discourse on original sin? Well, 
what you're going through, that's just part and parcel to life in a fallen world. You know, it rains on the just and the unjust, you Romans. You actually deserve it because you've inherited Adam, your father's sin. And what's more, just be happy. Be happy for the good you have experienced and that you haven't experienced anything worse. Now, if he had said these things, and he does and elsewhere in so many words, Paul would have been absolutely right. He's technically true. What I just said is technically, theologically right, according to the Bible. But that's not what Paul does. Instead, to the Romans, there in what we now call chapter 8, Paul rallies the team. Not by painting an unrealistic, overly confident kind of head-in-the-sand picture of what they're going through, but rather, to them directly, he proclaims the truth of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In effect, he is saying with those words that I read, yes, we are absolutely in a bad way. We're in a very bad way. But so what? God is for us. He's chosen us. He has justified us And who can change that? What human entity or power or natural force can take that away? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. All of those are terrible things. But they're nothing, Paul says, in comparison with the raw, gracious power of God for his people. This passage from Romans 8 is an encouraging passage to be sure. It is a good speech, you might say, a good locker room speech, but the thing is, it's even better than just a speech. It is a prophetic proclamation of reality. You see, Paul is preaching to the losing team that they are going to win. Not just to give them the motivation to get out there and try so they don't go out with as much shame as they might otherwise. Still lose the game, but say at least we gave it the old college try. But he goes and he says what he does so that they will have confidence in the end which is already written. The score is already down. They just haven't gotten to that point yet. You see, Paul's words are motivating and positive ones, but the most important thing for them and for us is that they are true. Though people can jump out of the Father's hand, and sadly many people do, people can walk away from God. God, though, will not forsake us. He will not throw us out of his hand or let others pluck us out. And all of those awful things that Paul lists, do they have the power to harm and to hurt and even discourage? Sure they do, absolutely. But not to separate us from God and his love. Not at all. God will vindicate his name and with his name, his people along with him. You see, that is our reality now. It's the reality for the Roman Christians in the time that they first read or heard Paul's words. It is the reality for the church since then, now, and until the end. And we believe it by faith now, but someday we will see it for the reality that it always has been with our own eyes. So let us have every confidence now, as we hear these words, have every confidence in him who has proven himself true proven himself faithful time and again. Let us not be dismayed, 
whatever present troubles we are going through collectively or individually, whatever trials we have, but let us rather be renewed in our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, who died and who more than that was raised, and whoever intercedes for us before the throne of God in heaven. In his name, amen.